I, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I can't. I feel like I'm in the spotlight. Am I? I mean, can you even see me? I don't, I hope I don't melt, right? Um, my testimony of faith is very similar to that of young Timothy. You know, First Timothy, he talks about his grandmother and his mother being very influential in his faith. My life was, growing up, my life was like that. My grandmother and my mother raised me along with my three sisters. And uh, when I was being, growing up, I was um, perceived to be pampered. Now, my three older sisters would claim that that was true. I think it was just a perception. I wasn't really pampered. And I had an uncle that said, okay, come on, you need to come to California with me. So it was the summer of 1976, and I went out there, and uh, the, the purpose was to make me a man. I was 16 years old, and he thought, now is the time. You know, you need to work a job, do something that creates a lot of uh, blisters on your hand and sores on your feet and an aching back. So I went out to this place called Sugar Bowl, which is in Northern California. Northern California, it's up in the Sierra Mountains. And it was an isolated place in the summertime. In the winter, of course, it's booming because of snow and skiing and all that. But in the summertime, it's just uh, clear bush and do all those kinds of things. So he wanted to expose me not only to that hard kind of labor, but also to new things. And one of the new things that he wanted to expose me to was an artichoke. And he talked about this artichoke and how delicious this artichoke was and how we're going to eat artichokes and it's just going to be amazing. And uh, I saw the artichoke and I thought, wow, that's, that's kind of an interesting thing. I, I thought it was really cool. So then my aunt, she uh, puts this artichoke in a pressure cooker and she cooks it up and they put it on my plate. Now, I, I'm a, a hillbilly, you know, potatoes, meat, beans, and cornbread, and I'm good. All they did was put this artichoke there, and they had talked about it and had said how delicious it was and things. And then they said, just watch, and they would rip off a piece, and they would scrape it off their teeth, and that's how they did it. So I thought, well, I can do that. I'm not kidding. I, and If you're an artichoke grower or lover, I don't mean to offend you, but it was all I could do to keep it in my mouth out of respect for the fact that she had worked so diligently and spoken so highly of this thing. And then my uncle said, you know, try it with mayonnaise. They did not have enough mayonnaise in the house <laughs> for me to get that artichoke down. The outside and the uh, expressed purpose of that artichoke that they had told me, and the nutrients and the wonderful, just didn't go, just didn't work for me. In the end, it was just a, a bad culinary experience for me. We're doing portraits, and the portrait this morning is the portrait of Balaam. And Balaam is a lot like that artichoke. If you take your Bibles and turn to Numbers chapter 22, you will read the story of Balaam, and you will think, man... There's something about this guy that looks good. There's something about this that, that just seems right. But then as you bite into it, and as we make our way into the New Testament, we find out that it's terrible. We find out that he was not a good guy. He was not a prophet to be followed or to be uh, one that we wanted to uh, really you know, have in our lives. And so this morning, what I would like for us to do is go to the book of Revelation, and in Revelation chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, we'll find out about Balaam. Uh, he is a bad example, 
but he teaches us a good lesson. He is a bad example that teaches us a good lesson. If you remember, uh, the book of Revelation is written, of course, uh, for us to try to understand what's coming, what the end times will be like. And in Revelation chapter 1, we find out about Jesus. We find out about how he is going to be the one to uh, judge and to look at us and to watch over us. And then in Revelation chapter 2, John writes or records seven different letters that are written by Jesus Christ. And those letters are presented to try to be an encouragement to us, to try to get us to, to get to a place where we're able to stand and do what is necessary on all different kinds of levels. So let's look at this letter, kind of try to understand the, the bad example, but the good lesson that can come from the life of Balaam. Uh, if you look at the, your Bible in Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 12, it says, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Uh, now, in the Eastern ancient culture, uh, that's how they led their letters off. They led their letters off with who wrote it. You know, we write at the end. We say, sincerely yours, and sign it at the end. You know, a lot of times when you get a letter, you look to see the return address to see who it's from, or you uh, open it up and you look on the back and see who it's from. But their letters were written immediately, you know, who it was coming from. And this letter is written by Jesus Christ. And it is uh, written to this city, Pergamum, which was a part of the Roman Empire. And if you know anything about Rome, Rome had a sword as its symbol. And so the people of Pergamum, when they hear about this person with a sword, they are very much aware of judgment and the power that the sword can bring. And so when Jesus introduces himself, he says, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. Jesus is saying, I have the power and I am going to deliver a message to you. And it's going to be a message that I hope will change you and make you more of what you want to be. Uh, the, the, the Pergamum as a part of the Roman Empire, they're fully managed by the Romans. Uh, they are under Roman rule. And they were a favored city. And as a favored city, they often had money that was poured into their city so that they could build a variety of different things, uh, whether it was a temple or whether it was a, uh, some sort of an atrium for people to go into or a, a marketplace, whatever it was, Rome would pour money into them. It was a place that had uh, great statues to the gods, like Zeus. One of the largest statues was that of Zeus, along with a guy named Aesculops. Aesculops was the god of healing. And so Pergamum is this place there where Rome is in control. And then Christianity arrives and begins to make a change in that city. And the people of Pergamum uh, decide that they're going to follow Christ. And, and here's this letter that comes to them and says, this is Jesus speaking. And in this description of Jesus, John reminds his readers of the word of God. It's a double-edged sword, his message. Now, I love that he says double-edged sword. Because if you understand the word of God, there are times when the word of God cuts and it brings pain to you. It, it cuts into you and you're like, I, I just don't like what it's saying. And then there are other times where the Word of God cuts in a healing way to remove things that bring comfort in your life. And so John is trying to remind them that this is the Jesus that's writing to you. He is the one that is expressing his interest in you. Uh, you, you see, it fits kind of a pattern here. He talked about the church of Ephesus, and in, in Revelation chapter 2, when he talked about Ephesus, they were a loveless place, and so Christ was shown as caring and loving. 
Then the second letter that he writes is to the church at Smyrna. And the church of Smyrna lacked patience. And so the picture of Christ to the church of Smyrna was that of an enduring Christ. And then when we come to the church at Pergamum, uh, we find out that they are lax and they've kind of dropped their guard and they aren't as strong as they should be. And so the Jesus that is presented is the Jesus with the sword, Jesus that is powerful, that can protect you and give you what you need so you don't need to compromise or be lax. In verse 13 of Revelation chapter 2, he says this, I know where you live. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. These are some sobering and searching words, aren't they? It's sobering from the fact that Jesus has the power and authority and knows where you are all the time. Now, for some of you, that's, that's comforting. It's like, well, I'm, I'm glad. For others, you're like, boy, I'm, I, I hope he's not. I hope he doesn't see what all that I do. But he does, and he's there for us. It's a good thing that, that Jesus Christ knows. And to those in Pergamum, it was a great comfort. It was a tough place to live and to have your, your faith tested. It, uh, as I already mentioned, it was a religious center for Zeus and for others. And they received uh, imperial initiatives, and so they were being showered with money from Rome. So there's this pressure from being in that kind of society and culture. And when we learn about Balaam, we learn about that it is a place that has great idolatry, that there is a, a horrible level of morality. Uh, there is just this culture that is so vile and so questionable, and that's where these people are. And Jesus comforts them by saying, I know where you live. I know where you are. I know that you are in a place, and he describes it like this. He says, it's a place where Satan has his throne. One writer said about this statement, he says this, Satan's got his operations all over the world. That's quite an amazing statement that Satan has his throne. Make no mistake, my friends, his throne is not in hell. It is in this world. This is the field of his operation. Hell is the place of his incarceration. This is the place of his operation. We live in such a place. We live in a culture that has decided to compromise itself, to weaken its standards before God. And we find ourselves perhaps drawn to this hope that comes with these words from John in Revelation chapter 2. Zeus had a huge statue, as I said. It was 40 feet high and 100 feet across. And along the the base of it were uh, images carved of the gods, the Greek gods, defeating human beings. And the whole point was to, to say, you know what, uh, religion or this uh, following Zeus will help you defeat these barbarians that are coming around. It's this culture that says that God has no place and Jesus knows where you are. Jesus knows that you're there. Jesus Christ is powerful and he knows. Sometimes that doesn't work out for some. Remember Adam? In the beginning of the scriptures, we find out that God comes into the garden and he says, Adam, where are you? Adam was not comforted by the presence of God. He ran and hid because he was involved in sin. Remember Jonah? Jonah, it was the call of God upon his life that said, come and and go to Nineveh. And Jonah ran from the presence of God. This morning, I hope that you find comfort in the presence of God and find comfort as we go through this letter to these people in Pergamum. Find comfort in the realities that Jesus Christ is there and knows where you 
where you are. So there are three parts to this letter that I would like for us to look at. And what we're going to do is we're going to pull the, the middle part of the letter, letter out first, and then we'll talk about the ends, okay? So let's start at the middle of this letter, and the, the middle is the problem, the problem. The problem in Pergamum was they were compromising. Look at verse 14. He says this, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who, have, uh, who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. There's our guy, Balaam. Uh, he says, here's the problem. I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam. And he's very clear as to what that teaching is. That teaching is to worship idols and to indulge yourself physically through sexual things. He says, you have resisted a lot of things, but you have fallen prey to this one thing. Uh, Balaam was an eloquent teacher. We learn about that in Numbers chapter 22. Uh, We aren't going to read through Numbers chapter 22. You might want to write that down and think, well, you know what, I think I'll read that later to get the the full account. But in Numbers chapter 22, you find out that that Balaam is very eloquent, very well-spoken. You also find out that Balaam is all about the money. Uh, One writer called him the prostitute prophet. He would do anything for a dollar. And in this story, in Numbers chapter 22, uh, Balak comes to him, who was the king of Midia, uh, and he says to them, I want you to come and I want you to be a part of cursing these people Israel. And the reason why they were so afraid of Israel is because they had heard about all these things that God had done for them. God had split the Red Sea and allowed them to cross to escape the Egyptians. Uh, God had been involved in defeating the uh, uh, Amorites, who were a a mighty nation at that time. God had been involved in bringing great healing to them uh, when snakes had come and bitten them. God had provided water for them when they had no water as they were wandering through the wilderness. And so Balak said, I want nothing to do with these people, and so I want you, Balaam, to come and to curse them. And Balaam said, "Uh, I will, I'll do that. And uh, Balak offered him all kinds of riches and all kinds of money. And so he went to do Balak's bidding of cursing the children of Israel. But God stopped him and said, listen, Balaam, you have to remember something. You can't curse these people with blessing from me because they're my chosen people. You can't curse them. And so what Balaam decided to do was to kind of do an end around. And so he told to Balak, he said, you need to take the women and allow them to seduce the Israelite men. And when they seduce the Israelite men, they will marry them, and then these men will follow your idols, and their society will crumble. And that was the message of Balaam. And that's what was happening here in Pergamum. There were those that were allowing the message of Balaam, the compromise, uh, to, to lower your guard, and to say, you know what, we're going to just allow Balaam and these teachings to be what they are. See, sometimes we forget that our walk with God is a difficult walk with God. I I am not a big boxing fan, but you can't help but notice it when it comes in the news. Just recently, this uh, Manny Pacquiao and this Jeff Horn boxed. And like I said, I'm not a huge fan, but I know a couple of things about boxing, and that is Cassius Clay or Muhammad Ali was a great boxer. One of the reasons he was so great is because of his hands. They were so quick in his feet, and he could move, and he would keep his hands up, and he would, he would fire the punches and, and, and defend himself and block off other punches. 
It was when Cassius Clay became older and he dropped his hands as Muhammad Ali and his face became vulnerable and he began to take too many shots to the head that things became more difficult. And that's what's happening in Pergamum. They have dropped their guard. They have dropped their hands. And the punches that are coming from those teachers, those false teachers of Balaam that say, you know what, it's okay. It's okay to experiment a little bit. You know, taste the food of these uh, things that have been offered to these other idols. Or, or go ahead and dip your toe into the water of some of these questionable kind of immoral things. It's okay. Just test it. You're not really going full bore. Just test them. So they're dropping their guard. And that became a problem for them. It was a problem for them. In verse 14, he uses this word. He says, uh, um, um, you have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. That word entice is the word stumbling block. Now think about that. You know, I, I, I think of a stumbling block as something, you know, you kind of stub your toe on and you kind of trip over. And that's what he was doing. He was kind of just setting these things before the people where they were just kind of stumbling over them. It wasn't like they were going headlong or full bore. It's just they were stumbling over them and, and kind of messing in there. And that was a problem for the people of Pergamum. And, and the point that is being made here is that the followers of Jesus Christ were compromising and participating in things they shouldn't have been participating in. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6 addresses this kind of thing. Because what happened was there were those that said, you know what, in Christ I am free. And so because I am free in Christ, what rules or what laws are you going to put on me? It became known as antinomianism. Anti meaning against, nomos meaning law, against law. And these antinomians were like, don't give me rules. Don't tell me what I cannot do. Instead, understand that I am free in Christ so I can do whatever I want to. I can, I can move. Well, in Romans chapter 6, that question is posed to Paul. Uh, the question is posed in Romans chapter 6. He says, uh, what shall we do then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? You know, if, if God gives grace to the sinner, then that's what we want to do, right? We want to sin so we get more grace. And, and, and Paul does this in, in very emphatic with uh, leaving no doubt. He says, absolutely not. We do not want to get the grace of God because we are sinning on purpose. And that's the kind of idea that Balaam was about. Balaam was stumbling and causing problems for these people. And today in our society, there is this sense that says, you know what, I am in Christ. I have Christian liberty. I have religious freedoms, and I can do whatever I want. Well, one of the things that we sometimes forget is that even with personal liberty that the United States guarantees to me, I have personal liberty. I can do and say whatever I want, allegedly. Like, for example, swinging your fist. You can swing your fist as hard as you want, and you are free to do that, but where must it stop? Before it gets to the other guy's nose, right? I mean, you can swing and do, but if someone is hurt by it, then all of a sudden you have uh, created a problem for yourself. Uh, same way in Christian liberty. In Christian liberty, I am free indeed. I have been saved. I have been let go forgiven, but my personal liberties in Christ end when I see the person next to me. 
And sometimes we are so absorbed in this idea of, I'm free, I can do whatever I want, that we forget about those around us. Can we, can we just kind of look at a couple of things, ask yourself a couple of questions when you get involved in actions or, or, or are challenged with things? Uh, first of all, you ask yourself, is it lawful? Am I allowed by law to do this? That's a pretty basic kind of a question. Another question to ask is, is it profitable? Will it build me up or somebody else up? This thing that I'm about to get involved in, is it going to build me up or tear me down? Is it going to build the person in my life that I love and care for? Is it going to build them up or tear them down? When you ask yourself about activities you're involved in, you say, is it controlling me? I am free to do this in Christ. But now am I in bondage to that thing, that, that action that I've chosen? Or, or when it comes to, to people... Uh, we live in an age where we are absolutely inundated with things from what people are saying. Uh, I, I oftentimes, when I'm teaching a class, I will share something with my class, and I will say to them, I will say, this is not a Twitter response. I'm not tweeting this. So that when I tell you this, I'm not tweeting this so that you will give me 50 likes or 50 retweets. Or I'm not blogging this where at the end of the blog, I want to know your opinion. I'm telling you this so that you know what to do. You go, because we live in that kind of age, right? Someone says something, well, we've got to weigh in. Well, there's so many opinions, there's so many ideas that are coming around. Ask yourself when you're dealing with people and what they're asking you to do, ask them, what do they say about Christ? What do they say about Christ? Do I want to be involved in this activity or this with this person, what do they think about Jesus Christ? Or, or ask yourself, what do they, they think about redemption and the Redeemer? You know, too many times we are caught up in the problem. You know, today there are those groups that love to preach and talk about, you know, all the problems and how sad and how sick and how we are. And, and leadership has devolved into brokenness. Broken leaders who can tell you a horrible story about their past. And so you uh, oftentimes become more empathetic to the person than you become committed to the work of Christ. So those are things that you ask as you, you try to keep away from compromising. Or those that you read or listen to. Do they emphasize prosperity? Do they tell you that, you know, love Jesus, follow Jesus, and life will be grand? Uh, you will be uh, uh, clicking the, the, the unlock button to your Jaguar or your whatever kind of car. If you just follow Jesus, do they emphasize prosperity or do they emphasize the relationship and the richness that comes with knowing Christ, the peace that passes all understanding when troubles come? You see, Balaam was into bringing them right to the edge, causing them to stumble, into these things that they shouldn't have been doing. Now, we have to be careful. You know, we do not live in a monastery. We do not want to preach monasticism. You know, let's all just get in our little kind of cloisters and hide from the world. Instead, we're huddles, right? We're huddling up to come together to find out what the Word of God says and to read and understand the Word of God and then to go out from the huddle, to break the huddle and to infiltrate the world and being those that set the standards by which others measure what God can do. We need to be careful. 
how we spend our time, what we read, what we listen to, with whom we spend our time. Balaam is a warning to us to, to not drop your guard, to keep your hands up and to defend yourself and to be aware that there are those in the world that are looking to drag you down and create a stumbling block for you. So the problem is compromising instead of set-apart living for God. Uh, notice if we back up to verse 13, there is praise in the letter. In verse 13, he says this. He says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Now, there are those that are compromising, but he says, listen, I know there are some of you that are hanging in there. It's like today, there are some of you that are so full and and compromised, you are just living a life during the week that does not reflect what Sunday has talked about. But then there are others of you that are coming in here today and you are feeling beaten down by the stress and the struggle that life brings to you. And God says, you are the ones I want to praise and say, you have remained true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. You hung in there and stood firm. You maintained a stand for Christ. Amid a very hostile environment, you remained. You held firm to my name. Not merely saying, I'm a Christian, but holding to the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. That Jesus Christ is the standard by which I measure the things of life. It's not a popular thing to do today. It is not a popular thing to have an opinion that runs contrary to what others have. It's not a popular thing. But but Jesus says, you have maintained it. Uh, You have been holding to the name of Christ. Maybe I'm living in too much of the world in which I teach. I I teach uh, uh, advanced placement, uh, United States government, and politics. That's what my full-time job is. And and, uh, so oftentimes I get caught up in that world. And too many times what's happening today is there seems to be this opinion that what I need to hold firm to is a political position. You know, I just need to hang in there and Congress or the Supreme Court or the president or the opposing party or someone is going to bring about political revival. And so if I just hang out, you see, they were involved in a place where things were not going very well, but yet they held firm to the name of Jesus because there's power in the name of Jesus. The, the apostles taught that, didn't they? In Acts chapter 4, they say this. They say, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. You see, the name of Jesus has the power to save us. And they held firm to that name. Held firm to the name of Jesus. They stood true to the name of Jesus. Remember Jesus, he said this. He says, I want you to pray in the name of Jesus because there's power in the name of Jesus. This morning, you need to hold to the name of Jesus. Like these ones in Pergamum did, you did not let go. Instead, you were true to my name. And then he says, you did not renounce your faith. You did not deny it. You did not say no to the, to the name, to your faith. There's nothing that you have pulled away from. A Pergamum um, has in it this idea of parchment. Have you ever heard of parchment? That's the kind of paper that they used back then. 
uh, the people in Egypt, Alexandria, uh, they used papyrus. And they refused to send papyrus to the people in Pergamum because the people in Pergamum were building a giant library. And the people in Alexandria, Egypt, did not want that library in Pergamum to rival their library in Alexandria. And so what the people of Pergamum did is they began to make parchment and they began to write and put things on parchment. So they had a vast library of books. Now, now think about your library at home. You know, you've got a, a bookcase with some books on it and things like that. Imagine a library with scrolls because that's what they had, right? They rolled everything up. So imagine about a uh, 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 hundred thousand scrolls. That's what the 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 place in Pergamum, the library in Pergamum had. So there was this vast wealth of information that was available to the people in Pergamum. And they had that access, and they, they had that there for them, all the new writings, all of the, the new information. They could have easily been swayed by the writings of the city of Pergamum. Uh, this library was so great that there are some historians that believe that uh, Mark Anthony came and took the library and sold it and gave it as a gift to um, uh, Cleopatra. That's how big it was and important it was. But these people said, you know what, Uh, we're going to continue to trust. We're going to have faith. We're going to trust. And notice what he says, you're going to trust in me. Trust in me. You've heard this before, right? You've heard people say, brother, you just have to have faith. (laughs) You just have to have faith. I heard an evangelist tell a story one time, and he was talking about a guy who was telling his little buddy, he said, you know what? You just have to have faith that you can milk that cow. You just have to believe and have faith. So he, he says, okay, I can do that. And he went in and he got kicked to death by the, the, the cow because he didn't know how to do it right. And the cow ended up kicking him. Well, you had faith in a cow that's going to... What do you have faith in this morning? That's the whole point, isn't it? In Pergamum, they had faith in Jesus Christ. This morning, do you have faith in yourself? I can handle this. Do you have faith in your friends? You know what? As long as I do this, my friends like me. And that's all I want. I just want for my friends to like me. What do you have faith in this morning? Do you have faith in the power of Jesus' name? I love this. As he goes on, he says this. He says, Not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. This is all that's really known about this, this guy in the Bible. Antipas is mentioned here. And notice the name that Jesus gives him, my faithful witness. That's a beautiful name. If all you're going to know about me is I'm a faithful witness, that's a pretty good thing to know, isn't it? And that's what happens here in this praise to the people of Pergamum. He says, this guy Antipas has been my faithful witness. Now, tradition tells us that he was roasted alive inside of a brass ox, roasted alive. And that was his, his, his penalty or payment for being a faithful witness. And I love what Jesus does when he writes this letter of, of praise. He says, you have not denied my name. You have held firm to it. And then he says this at the end. He says, in your city where Satan lives. You have been so good to hold to your truth. You have been so good in this city, in this city where Satan lives. This is a level of high praise that comes from Jesus to these people in Pergamum. 
So we've seen the problem of compromise. We hear the praise that comes. But because of the compromise, there needs to be a prescription for correction. And that's found in verse 16. Notice what he says in verse 16. He says this, Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. The prescription for correction begins with a very emphatic statement. This is an imperative. This is not one of those statements where he says, okay, keep on doing it. Instead, this is a one-time act. And the one-time act is to repent. Repent. Don't keep going. Don't keep going in kind of uh, touching and stumbling over these things that are immoral and impure and idolatrous. Instead, repent. And the idea of repent is to turn away from something to something. Now, these people in Pergamum understood exactly the idea of repent because they've done this before. They have turned away from the idols of Zeus and Escalop and others and turned away from them to Jesus Christ. But Balaam has come along and said, you know what, it's okay, kind of, let's just walk this way a little bit and we can kind of follow along both. And Jesus says, no, repent, change, turn right now. This is a one-time act, turn and follow after Christ. He says to them, repent, Jesus says, I have a few things against you, and one of them is I want you to change. You see, the the old way of thinking was follow your heart. The new way of thinking is follow me, Jesus says. The old way of thinking is love yourself. And Jesus says, no, deny yourself. The old way of thinking is, you know, you just need to be true to yourself. And Jesus says, no, be true to me. This morning he is asking for us to to turn away from those things that are causing us to stumble. He says, otherwise I will soon come. I will show up. You say, boy, that sounds like a threat. It doesn't sound like a threat. It is a threat. (laughs) But it's a threat that promises that as we move in a waywardness away from God, he will be there to take us and bring us back to where we need to be with him. Follow after me. And he says this in verse uh, 16. He says this. He says, I will come uh, to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, I love this for a couple of reasons. The first thing is because it kind of ties the whole passage together. Remember at the beginning we talked about Jesus is the author of this and he talked about the sword, the double-edged sword. And the other reason why I love this is because it takes us right back to Balaam. In the story of Balaam, uh, Balaam decides that he's going to go and do his thing uh, with Balak. And as he's going, he gets on his donkey and he begins to ride his donkey. And as the donkey is going along, the donkey stops. And the reason the donkey stops is because the angel of the Lord holding the sword of the Lord is in front of him. And the, the donkey like hits the brakes and says, I'm not doing this. And Balaam begins to beat the donkey. So the donkey kind of goes off a different way and the angel of the Lord moves in front of the donkey and the donkey stops for the second time and for the third time. And finally on the third time, the the donkey lays down and Balaam is beating the donkey. And do you remember this story? What does the donkey do? He looks back at Balaam and says, why are you beating me? (laughs) 
Why are you hitting me? I'm your, I'm your lifelong friend, man. We've ridden many a trails together. Why are you beating me? Now, Balaam, instead of thinking, what, what is the donkey talking? He talks back to the donkey. Says, you need to get going and get moving. And finally, the Lord opens Balaam's eyes, and there he sees the angel of the Lord holding the sword of the Lord. And I love that he uses that in this passage to those followers of Balaam. Remember how Balaam had an encounter with the angel of the Lord and the sword of the Lord. He says, I am going to come with the sword and deliver you from this compromise. This morning, he gives us the prescription on how to get out of this, how to pull out of this. I love what he says when he continues this. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, Nikaho, the conqueror who uh, conquers, gets over this, uh, to him that overcomes... Uh, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name. Now, there are two things that are so great about this. Now, you, you remember manna, right? Manna was the, the honey bread that God gave to the Israelites when they were complaining. They were, they were starving, and so God brought manna to them. And so this is an analogy to that, to that manna that came, and it was, it was uh, always available to them, Right? They could eat their full, and they were always able to satisfy themselves with this manna. And, and, and some writers say, he's talking about this hidden manna. He's talking about the manna that was hidden in the Ark of the Covenant. He's not talking about that. I think instead he's talking about himself. He's talking about a celestial sustenance. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus, when you uh, come back to him, he will eternally provide for you all that you need. Remember in John 4 when the disciples came to Jesus after he had talked to the woman at the well, and they said, hey, listen, we've got some bread for you. And Jesus says, listen, I have meat to eat that you know not of. I think that's what he's referring to here. He's saying this morning, he's saying to you, here's here's what's, what's available to you. You decide that you are going to step back away. You're going to repent from that kind of lifestyle that is stumbling over these things. And I have for you a a, a celestial sustenance. You will forever be taken care of in the person of Jesus Christ. And then he, he says this. He says, I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. This is an assurance of blessing. I'm not exactly sure what he's talking about, but there are several things here. One is uh, they used to have a black stone and a white stone when they would do their jurying. And a white stone meant that you're free, you're, you're set free, you can go free. So it could be an, an, an allusion to that. Uh, or it could be what happened was whenever you were a victor in any of their Olympic games, they would give you a white stone. And that white stone became like uh, an eternal pass. So that any festival, any activity you could get into with that white stone. The idea here, whatever it is, is, is the idea of blessing. So whatever he is specifically talking about, the, the, the general purpose here is blessing. There is an assurance of blessing that will come to you as a result of being repentant over the things that you've done and coming back to Jesus Christ. Uh, this morning, the lesson of Balaam is a bad one, Right? I mean, he is a bad example. He is a bad guy who has uh, loved life for profit and loved the things of God for his own gain and personal use. And there are those that have fallen into it. And God says, listen, you need to move away from that. You need to get away from what it is that is causing you to stumble. 
the prescription is turning back to Jesus Christ. Uh, Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this group of people this morning that have made an effort to come and be in this place. And Lord, we ask that as they are here and as they are a part of this closing prayer, we ask that their mind would be turned to the Word of God and that they would allow the Spirit of God to look at their hearts and allow them to accept the praise if they have held firm, if they have kept the name of Jesus. But Father, allow their hearts to turn away from the things that compromise your standards. Give them the hope that when they turn, they will forever be cared for through your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we'll thank you for delivering this message of hope to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Have a wonderful week.